the fact that this has to be done and is necessary to be done. So God removes any doubt that who is behind the destruction of this nation. It's not just Satan. It's not just the Democrats and the rhinos. It's God. I will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue it. So when God tears it up, there's no rescue coming. Then he says in verse 15, I will go and return to my place. It's as if he's coming down to wreak this destruction. This is speaking of Christ here. He'll return to his throne and he's going to wait after he tears the nation apart. I'll go to my place until they acknowledge their offense. They begin to say, yes, we were wrong. A comment was made last night in a little gathering where somebody says, well, what's wrong with God's law? Or something of that nature. And I thought, well, they don't really have an objection to God's law. They just feel a few, just a very few words need to be changed. You can actually go with the, pretty well the whole thing, except take out a word or two and maybe add a word or two. Thou shalt not worship thy God with all your heart. Thou shalt not keep the Sabbath. Thou shalt commit adultery, thou shalt lie, steal, and thieve, thou shalt covet, you get the picture, they don't need to do away with the Ten Commandments, just modify it slightly, so it says the opposite of what it does. That's pretty well where we are as a nation, we're breaking everything in there, and we think it's okay. You think God isn't going to come and tear as a result of that? He's not going to put up with that in this universe. And he's not going to put up with it much longer on this earth. He's given a certain latitude, but that latitude has pretty much come to an end. He gave us 430 years to get it right, and we didn't. So I believe he passed judgment in August of 2017, and we're... Since then, from 2019 on, when they introduced the COVID virus, we have been going down rapidly as a nation, and that is continuing apace. So he says he's, he's going to make the judgment, he's going to start tearing, tear us apart, and then go back and wait until we acknowledge our offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. He understands what it will take for Israelites and USAites to begin to acknowledge that they're wrong and to seek him. That is, they will have to go without food and water. They will have to suffer great diseases. They will have to see their children die. They will have to begin to eat their mates and their children and get absolutely desperate before they will even begin to turn it around. People who 
think we're going to have a great revival here and God's going to save the nation don't have a clue about what God says is going to happen. Now, this sounds horrible. But God knew a long time ago what it would take to get our attention. And it is going to have to be desperate measures to get Americans to wake up. I mean, even the preppers of the Patriots think somebody's going to come along and be a hero and save us. No. Not when God says just the opposite. But when they come to those conditions, then he says they're going to start thinking and they'll repent and seek me early. So he knows what the response ultimately is going to be and that it's going to be a good response. It's just what it takes to get that response that's the problem. Ever try to get the attention of somebody or some child and see what it takes to get their full attention and to get their willingness to agree and cooperate? doesn't come easy a lot of times with our friends, our mates, our children. So what's it like when you have a whole society who is adamant against God? against his ways, which makes them adamant against him. So it's going to take that. And then he says they'll start coming around. It won't take too long. So let us pick it up in chapter 6 then with that thought in mind, because here they respond. Come and let us return to the eternal. For he has torn... And he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. So they're going to come to recognize their sin, our sin, and will begin to say, God did this. Let's go to him and see if he will heal us and help us. They will have tried everything else they can think of to try, and it isn't going to work. And things will get worse and worse until they finally say, there must be a God. He's the one that did this. Ooh, the bell rings. The light comes on. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. That's an interesting statement there in verse 2, and I'm not sure I understand all the ramifications and possible meanings of it. Um, You can speculate this way and that way and come up with some possibilities. But let's look at it in an overall sense here. There may be other and maybe even specific meanings to this. But think of Christ, he was dead two days, and then at the end of three days, uh, he was resurrected, and it is he who will save the nation. So it may be a reference in part to his death and resurrection here on the earth, but that also might have an implication in that 
we had the fifth, sixth, and seventh days since creation from the time he died and was resurrected uh, until the millennium starts. Two days. And the two days since he was here are almost done. Been almost 2,000 years. Just a few left. So the end of the second day is upon us. The millennium begins then the third day since he was here. So this may be a reference to his physically being here in his death and resurrection, as well as the longer time frame of 3,000 years, that after two days, that is the beginning of the third day or the millennium, is when he will raise us up and begin to bless. And that seems to fit with the rest of the prophecies in that this total destruction is coming not on, only on Israel, but with the seven last plagues, even on the rest of the world until most of the population of the earth is destroyed. And only then will he come back and begin to bless, because people will be ready to listen at the beginning of the millennium. Now, most will have died, and they'll be ready to listen at the beginning of the Great White Stone Judgment. But those who survive the Holocaust at the end will then begin to say, I think it's time to seek God. They're not going to begin to seek God until those conditions have occurred, and he's ready to then turn and bless them. That's the beginning of the millennium, not until, because the seven last plagues last through the year that the church, his bride, is in honeymoon with Christ. So he's not going to begin to revive this world, this nation, until these end-time events are all finished. And the third day is dawning, the 7,000 years. So if you read this in context about him blessing, we know all the other scriptures put together don't show him doing that until the beginning of the millennium. Now with the church it's different. He tore us ahead of time, okay? And we have gone through all kinds of spiritual difficulties, famine, disease, and death spiritually, and he's about to revive the 10% of the church and begin to bless it ahead of time because 10% will have repented and turned to him and be ready for his blessing. Just like the physical nation is going to go through what you and I have just been through on a spiritual level. Then they will begin to repent. So this application is for the church first and again the nation, and the nation is now facing what you and I faced in the 90s and since. And hopefully we're turning to them early, only 25 years later, more or less. <laughs> and he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. So he's going to be here to reign and to rule the earth with a rod of iron and to rule in mercy and in love and in kindness and in fairness and all those things in his sight. Now, 
contrasts that with him saying that he turned his face from the church, couldn't bear to look at us, and now he's about to turn his face back to the 10% who properly respond. And the same with the nation. He can't stand to look at America today. What do you mean, God bless America? He's so upset with it, he's starting to, and in the very, very near future, going to continue our destruction before our very eyes. And at some point, he's going to have to pull his people out and protect them at Zion, or they wouldn't make it either. So it has to come pretty soon. I just reviewed again this morning Jeremiah 50 about how it says that the people will flee ahead of the northern army, saying, where is Zion? And then you read on down in that chapter, and it talks about getting out of Babylon ahead of this. So he wants his people to be gathered just prior to the uh, invasion of this country. He'll get them out just ahead of it. How long is it until the invasion of this country? There are a lot of threats being made right now. I don't think it's very far off. And those powers that be in Washington are doing everything they can to weaken us and destroy us ahead of time so that we'll be a cupcake, be easy to invade. They don't need nuclear bombs. They don't want to destroy our infrastructure. They want to take it over and use it for their own things. They don't want to have to wait a hundred years for a nuclear winter. They're working hand in hand with our government to weaken us. And Jeremiah 50 even says very clearly, we will give our hand. We will make a deal. We'll shake hands to destroy this nation. Right there in black and white. So, we'll live in his sight, speaking of this nation. Then shall we know, if we follow on, to know the eternal. This nation will not know the eternal until the beginning of the millennium. Then's when they're going to get acquainted, but not until. His going forth is prepared as the morning. He's going to be ready when the time comes, all prepped, ready to go to work. And he shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and former rain to the earth. So he's going to bring great physical and spiritual blessings at the beginning of the millennium when people are finally ready to listen and accept his way. Now he's done the same thing with the church. He's waited and given a space to repent, given a space to come to love him and his law and to follow it, and to do it, and not to transgress it, to make him happy. I wonder if we think about that. Sometimes we look at the law and we have fear because we know if we break it, the penalty is death. But when God says, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments, if you love me, keep the commandments, then we begin to get to the point where we want to keep the commandments in order to please God and to make Him happy. Because He is His commandments. He is love. 
And the commandments are love. Now that's why Paul said the law is holy and just and good. And, Paul, and David said, oh, how loved by your law. We're supposed to love his law. Because loving it means that we're loving him. And keeping it simply expresses our love to him. You want to know how you express your love and your feeling and your emotion to God? By keeping his commandments. Because those bring peace between man and God and peace between man and neighbor. Breaking them destroys peace with God and it destroys peace with our neighbors. So commandment keeping is all about love. It's not all about death and destruction. It's just when you break it that you get in trouble. It's when you keep it that you're expressing your love, and then he turns and is pleased toward you. So it'll come as the former and latter rain with great blessing. Now that echoes of Joel 2, and I believe that we have already seen that happen in the church. There's an application there that I thought of, and it might fit too. I mean, this is a larger, wider, broader application I'm making to the nation here in the world. But when God gave me that dream or vision that he wanted me to prepare a place for his people near here, it was in Beaverdam, Arizona at the time. That was in 94. Two years later, beginning of the third year in 96, came the former and latter blessings. Understanding of Haggai and Zechariah. Understanding of the whole minor prophets. Understanding of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. That was in the first month of the third year, the beginning of the third year. And in the God's first month came the vision of where Zion and Jerusalem, not Jerusalem, but Zion and the Promised Land are. What an abundant outpouring of understanding and knowledge occurred in 96 and 97. Just incredible. So, at the beginning of the third day, from the time he said, go do this, the understanding came, and the former and latter rains began to come, and they've been coming on us ever since. We've learned more and more and more as these 25 years have gone by. Stuff we never comprehended all those decades in worldwide. Clear over our heads. And now we understand. Because God opened the former and the latter rains. So that has happened. And then he said, later I'll pour out my spirit... Was he saying the same year? Not necessarily. I'll give you all this understanding and knowledge of spiritual blessings because it's dealing with the church. And then later I'll pour out my spirit and you'll, your young men and old and so on will dream dreams and have visions and so on. 
here we are 25 years later. Is it nearly time for that? Probably is. Probably won't be long. Till signs and wonders and those things begin to happen. So, in the same, from the same standpoint, here he's talking to the nation about a physical people, and a physical people who will go into the millennium, and therein, at that time, begin the conversion process. But then is when, not just the spiritual blessings that we have seen as a spiritual organism or church, then we'll start those physical blessings on those physical Israelites who come out of the holocaust, almost having starved to death, almost having died of disease, barely having escaped the sword, and being only part of the only 100 million out of 8.5 billion that survived all this. They will be given food and clothing and good weather and the removal of all the armies that have oppressed them. There won't be any Democrats or Republicans, either one left. They'll be dead. Or they will repent of their political leanings, one of the two. So, yes, that's when he's going to do it. That's the beginning of the third year, thousand years after Christ was here. And by his death and resurrection, gave a type of it. Those were three literal days. And he pointed that out as the sign of Jonah. That's the only thing you get is three days. So after three days, the end of three days, actually, he was resurrected. But here, he says, it makes it clear there's a difference. Every application isn't exactly the same. Here it says, after two days will he revive us. At the end of two, and in the third day, he will raise us up. So, end of the second day, beginning of the third is the way, only way you could interpret that. So in a larger sense, I think that is speaking of right where we are. We're only a few years now from the millennium. And this death and destruction is just now starting. The first major salvo of it has been these two inoculations that people are taking that are, over a period of months and a year or two, going to kill an awful lot of people. An awful lot of people been designed, been prepared. I've read that they've been working on this vaccine for 20 years to be sure they designed it in such a way that it won't kill most people immediately, but it's built in to get you later. When you get a cold or flu or any kind of virus, it will act with it and be lethal to you. That's why they're desperate to do it even though it is so clear that the vaccinated are infecting the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. So it's not working at all. Well, if they had our best interests in mind, and they could see that the vaccinated are killing the vaccinated, this thing isn't working, they'd withdraw it in a heartbeat. But that's not their motive. Their motive is to kill 
So when they see it beginning to do that, they push even harder to be sure you get it so you will die. That could be their only motivation. You think the beast's power wants everybody to live in peace and prosperity, eight and a half billion, and have even more peace and prosperity so that we'll get up to ten or twelve billion? No. Their leaders have already stated we want 90% of you dead. We want you dead. Please take our vaccine so you can live and be safe. Believe that one? I got some swamp land in Florida. <laughs> you know? So he says, yes. They'll follow on to begin to know God. Well, who knows God? The ones that keep His commandments. They're going to start keeping the Sabbath. They're going to start obeying God, and then they will know Him. Because Christ said, if you haven't kept my commandments, I don't know you. Isn't that what He said? So they'll come on, and then He will bless. Verse 4, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? He's asking a question. It's in his own mind, in that sense, it's a question he asks himself. What am I going to do to you? You ever get exasperated with one of your kids or somebody and say, what am I going to do with you? How am I going to handle this? People even use the expression once in a while. Do you want a spanking? <laughs> oh, yes. I'll be first. No, they don't want one. It hurts. It's supposed to. But then you say, well, like it or not, you need it. <laughs> so God says, what do I do to you? Well, like it or not, it's got to come. It's got to happen. Oh, Judah, what shall I do to you? Both houses. For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goes away. We just cannot be good for very long. Now you look back at the history of Israel starting from Jacob on down and how much obedience over how many years have you seen in the nation of Israel. You can read through and God put it in there times of the kings and the judges and it was just up and down. Good king, bad king, good king, bad king. They couldn't be good. <laughs> when they did try to repent and did try to turn to God, it didn't last long. It was like the dew in the morning. As soon as the sun comes up, away it goes. All done. That's the way we've always been. So here he is in an end-time prophecy saying the exact same thing. This isn't God's first rodeo. He's seen this over and over and over again. Your goodness doesn't last. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. Go back and read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and these minor prophets. Hewed is a term having to do with axes and trees. I have cut you down, is what he's saying. 
I have slain you by the words of my mouth. From Deuteronomy 28, through all the prophets, haven't he said with his mouth and through the prophets, I will slay you, I will destroy you. So, shouldn't be any surprise that a few verses before this, he says, I'm going to come carry you like a lion would. I'm sure you've seen the documentaries where a lion gets hold of an antelope and four, five, six lions start pulling on every corner of it. It isn't a pretty sight. And your judgments are as the light that goes forth. Ever turn off a light switch? How long does it take to get dark? That's our judgments are in darkness. There's no justice in the land. Sick from head to foot, as I read, I think, last week in Isaiah 1. No justice, no judgment. The Constitution is done away with. People once in a while say, well, that's unconstitutional. That's against the law. Don't argue that. They have gotten rid of it. It doesn't mean a thing to them. I had our lawyer on this lawsuit that we faced on this property and still do. Tell me right off the bat, when I went into him and interviewed, and I said, we have our constitutional rights, and these people are violating them. And I says, we can go and stand on the Constitution. He says, if you go into court with the Constitution, you've been had. Now, this was, what, five, six, seven years ago? He says, forget about the Constitution. I was a little thick-headed there, and I was clinging to the idea that this is unconstitutional. Can't do this. Yeah, because he already recognized back then, having been involved with the courts and the judges, that the Constitution doesn't mean a thing. George Bush had called it just another blah, blah, blah piece of paper. And that's all it has been to the presidents and to the Supreme Court and to the judges in our land. So don't go saying, hey, wait a minute, you can't take me and cut my head off at an internment camp. That's against my rights. Funny boy. <laughs> How can you be so stupid? You have none. We are in charge now. You will come with us. Our judgment and our justice is gone. Verse 6, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God is not one who likes to see sacrifice, sacrificing animals, beautiful animals. He loves mercy. He didn't even speak to them of animal sacrifices when they came out of Mitzrayim or Egypt, sin. He said in Jeremiah 7.22 that it was added later because of transgressions. The sacrifices were not tied with his delivery whatsoever. They were tied to their ultimate disobedience after they came out. 
And he says, if you're going to insist on sinning, all right, now you're going to have to start sacrificing your animals. It's going to cost you something. You're going to have to deal with a lot of death. Now, that was a physical covenant with a physical people. And he did not, when they sinned, always kill them, but he made them kill their animals. So death was a result of their sin. Now, there were some sins, yes, that you were supposed to be stoned for, because they would impact society to a great degree. But the general, every day in and every day out, lying and cheating and stealing and blah, 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 you had to sacrifice animals for. So there was death, just not your own yet. But he was working with them so that they might quit sinning and quit killing their animals, and then he could show mercy. And that's what he's saying right here. Go to Matthew 9. See, Christ make a statement right here, which is very telling. In the context, uh, Christ is sitting at meat, verse uh, 10, in the house, and many publican sinners and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now, he didn't seek them out. He was sitting in the house maybe having dinner, whatever. And they came and sat down in the house. I don't know how big the house was. Maybe they were sitting on the floor all around. Who knows? And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why eat your master with publicans and sinners? Now Christ tells us we should be hospitable. So I'm sure when those people came in and sat down, he says, give them food. And when the multitudes came to him at times, he would say, feed them. Well, but Master, we would only have a few fishes and loaves of bread. We, we can't do this. He says, that's all right, pass it out. And Abraham, when Christ, Christ came to meet him and to visit with him in the plains of Mamre, immediately had a fatted calf killed and prepared a meal for them all. So we know how he thinks, okay? And the Pharisees didn't like it. These are publicans whom they couldn't stand, and sinners that they couldn't stand either. Now, they themselves were sinners, but they didn't admit that. So you always generally look at the sin of someone else and criticize them rather than yourself, which is why Christ said, cast the beam out of your own eye, then you might see the mote in somebody else's eye. Would you rather have a log in your eye or a little bit of stuff? Well, you've got to get the log out before you even have a chance to see. So, that's one of the reasons we like to criticize other people. That way we don't have to look at ourselves and criticize ourselves, because it's so much easier to criticize them and not see our own sins. So the Pharisees were self-righteous, 
and they said publicans and sinners. Why does he eat with them? We wouldn't. Oh my, they would not stoop that low. But your master stoops that low. But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Do you ever just feel like top of the morning, man, I am feeling good today. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I am going to attack this day with zest, zeal and energy. But I think I'll go get anointed first. Nah, doesn't happen that way. When you're feeling good, you don't need a vitamin, you don't need a pill, you don't need anointed, you don't need anything because you're feeling good. It's when you're not that you start looking for a solution. Isn't that what he's telling us in Hosea? This people are sick and they don't know it. We'll read that down in the context just a little further. And they're not seeking a physician because they don't think they're sick. They're not seeking God because they don't think they need Him. Who needs God? But then when they get really, really sick and they get really, really afflicted and hungry, then they're going to begin to say, Is there a God? Maybe I'll look into this. So, the sick ones are the ones that look for a solution. But go you and learn what that means. You Pharisees don't have a clue what I just said. Go learn what it means. In other words, you're sick and don't know it. You're whited walls, you're open sepulchres, you're snakes and serpents, and you don't have a clue what you really are. So go figure out what I'm talking about. Because you're sick, and you don't even know it. So you're not seeking a solution, you're seeking to criticize me. And then he follows it up. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Now he'd said that back in Deuteronomy. Or Samuel, I guess it is. I'll have mercy and not sacrifice. That's what I prefer. He didn't want sacrifices. If he was a mean God and wanted sacrifices right off the bat, he would have done that. <clears throat> He only required one sacrifice of them while they were in Egypt. And that was one that pointed to Christ. And when they put the blood of that one animal on their doorposts, they were protected by Christ from death. So that shows that he would rather have mercy than sacrifice. The people of Egypt did not slay the lamb. And their firstborn died. Now God's firstborn died. Firstborn of many brethren. And that was the only sacrifice that God wanted to ever have to institute. But because of disobedience after that, he says, all right, you're going to start killing your animals. You know, I wouldn't like that. Every time I sinned, I have to go out the backyard, kill an animal, 
bleed it all out, sacrifice it to God. I'd get tired of that pretty quick. I love my animals. Always have. When I was a kid, I'd go out to the goat pit. I'd sit and play with the little kids, and I'd play with the mamas and the daddies that didn't sing too bad. And I'd build special corrals for them and build special things for them to stand on to be milked. And I just loved being with them. I enjoyed the animals. It would have broken my heart to have to kill one. I had a little billy goat, and he grew up, and he had a beautiful set of curving horns, and he had a kind of a rich brown, light brown coat on him, long hair, beautiful, beautiful animal. And he was a pet to me. He would follow me around. And one day, my dad decided we had too many goats and it was time to butcher some. And he strung him up by the hind legs right in front of me and cut his throat. And I watched his blood drip down on the ground. That was one of the more traumatic moments in my life. I remember it vividly. And I wasn't very old. I don't remember many things from back then, but I remember that. Because I was hurt to the core. How did God feel when his son's blood poured out on the ground? It's a sad day in his life. And the fact that he had to forsake him and let it happen. Why have you forsaken me? Sorry, son, I had to. I had to. You had to die for all mankind. So here is that same Christ. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. And he knew, as he said that, that it would not be long until he would be sacrificed. And would he have preferred mercy? Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want mercy. I need mercy. He couldn't have it. And he can't have it here at the end either. If he had mercy starting today and removed all our enemies and he began to bless this land, we would never repent. We would never turn to him. We'd say, oh, our lucky day. God's blessing America, and then we would summarily forget about it, like we always have, historically. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Wasn't his goal. He didn't just mix there with his disciples. That's where he was, because he was teaching them to go where? Out to the world and help people repent and come to God. So he's trying to tell these stupid Pharisees, you're self-righteous, you don't understand. I'm here to help people who are sinners not get castigated because I'm sitting down with some. Go learn what that means. They're still working on it. They'll be back soon with an answer.
when all this hits, or when they come up in the great white throne judgment. Hey, we figured it out. I know what you meant now. Okay? Back to Hosea. I desired mercy. God on his throne and Christ beside him today would prefer mercy. They don't want to sacrifice us, humanly, physically kill us all, most of us. They don't want to. And they've told the church, those of you who will repent, who will return to me, I will protect and not sacrifice. But those who go through this Laodicean period of time and don't truly turn back to me are going to go into the tribulation and die. That's about 90%. Sad. It's not what I wanted. I wanted you to all repent. 10% of you have. Come on, I'll take care of you. He's going to take care of everybody that will repent, who will turn from their wicked ways, who will begin to control their thoughts, not just their actions. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ. Walk as he walked. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and see if he doesn't want you to have mind control over your own mind, thoughts, and emotions. Yes, he does. To those that overcome, will I grant to sit with me in my throne. So he's telling us right here, as a nation, I don't want to kill you. I'd rather have mercy. But you aren't listening. So instead, we're going to have sacrifice. He desired the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. A burnt offering was the one that was killed and then burned before him. He'd much rather our nation come to have a knowledge of God and serve him and obey him, and then he could show mercy. So he's giving us a chance here. He's telling us, hey, here's what I want. What are you going to do? What am I going to do with you people? He asked of us. But they like men have transgressed the covenant. There, there have they dealt treacherously against me. This nation, understand, is still under the old covenant. There are only a very, very few who have been offered and given the new covenant. Those whom God called into his truth are the only ones alive on earth today who are living under the new covenant. The rest of Israel has not been offered it, and they will not be until the millennium, or the beginning of the great white throne judgment, depending on where they come up. You have been offered the new covenant. You have accepted it. Now you have to live by the terms of it. This nation all the way back, accepted the Old Covenant. The, the New has not been offered. It's been laid out here in the book. But how was this book written? 
it was written that they might be taken and snared and deceived. Because God knows if he opened it up and told them the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, that they would deny it and turn from it. And he would have to kill them forever in the lake of fire. So he has mercifully only opened it to a few. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. You didn't turn to God on your own. He enacted upon your mind first and began to give you truth, and you accepted it. But most Americans did not. It was made available to them 24-7 by radio and television across the land. This, this nation was blanketed with it. I've said this many times, and some of you are too young to know it. But I could drive from the West Coast to the East Coast and hear the World Tomorrow broadcast every half hour all the way across. 50,000 watt channel stations, smaller stations. It was made absolutely available. And this nation would not accept it. So God knows what he's talking about. They dealt, dealt treacherously against me. Now, what terms and conditions is he about to punish this nation? It started now. It's going to get more intense. What justification does he have? The Old Covenant. Deuteronomy 28 is still in effect on America today. Ephraim. We haven't kept his commandments, and soon we will not have food. We will not have water. And we will be eating our own children in this country. We already are. Don't we know that? They're harvesting the organs of babies while their heart is still beating. Because the scientists say they need living organisms. It's that cruel. And we're not even physically hungry yet. We're killing our unborn and just-born babies, and we have a whole nation or governor, governor, government of pedophiles in Washington. If they don't get them killed when they're born, they molest them when they're 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. It's just sick. And that's our main leaders, presidents, vice presidents. Congress people are doing that today. And God has the old covenant to bring down upon them. They haven't been offered the new at all. But Israel, from the time the law was instituted until today, are still under the terms of that covenant. All the kings all the judges, generation after generation, were still under that. When Christ was here, the Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes were still under that. And even back then, when the church first began, only a few people, a few thousand, 
were enlightened and heard and responded. Same thing today. God put it out there everywhere, 24-7, and even worldwide to a great degree. Went all over Britain, went all over Europe and Australia and South Africa and a lot of places. Even South America. There were quite a few converted down there. We had ministers who went down to preach in Mexico and South America and all the way down. So it spread there too. God made it worldwide an opportunity. And the whole world rejected it. Herbert Armstrong paid his way to see some kings and rulers. But I think God was behind that. He told them there was a better way, a, a way of peace, a way of give instead of get. Wouldn't that be a nice message for all of our people in Washington to hear today? That there's a better way you could give instead of get. Well, they've kind of adopted it, haven't they? Yeah. They're sending out checks all the time now to people. They've learned to give money that they just digitally manufacture. They, they must have our best interests in mind because they're sending us this money so we can buy food and we, we don't have to pay rent anyway, but we can buy food and we can buy TVs and we can buy more cell phones. It's wonderful. But there's a problem. It's a push-pull. And they don't realize that they are going to have to pay that back. They don't realize that the government's going to say, well, wait a minute, we didn't just give that to you. You think we're that stupid? That was a loan. Now you have to pay it back. But I don't have a job, and I don't have any money, and I, I spent that last stimulus check on that 100-inch screen over there. Well, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Just deed your house and your car over to us, and we'll send you 2000 a month from now on. And you can be a happy camper with nothing. No, it's a two-edged sword. They're going to wake up to realize, oh my. No, Washington hasn't learned to give. They only give in order to get your vote and your house and your body and your mind. That's what they're after. And your life. That's what they're really after. And will have. With 90%. That's their goal. That's their purpose. And God said, go for it. I'll use you to tear. They transgressed the covenant. Now, what we're talking about? What covenant? The one he made with Israel. They transgressed it. Therefore, they dealt treacherously against me. It's a covenant God made with Israel, and we have abandoned it. Everything in it. So we're liable for that as a nation. Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity and is polluted with blood. We, we see increasing violence in our country. 
We see more and more murders and road rage and deaths of all kinds, and people even beginning to politically kill each other. But it's not blood running down the streets, is it? No, it's our baby's blood. As they kill our babies by the millions and wash their blood if they don't have a purpose for it in a vaccine, wash it down the drain and into the sewer system, which gets retreated and then comes out our tap and we drink our baby's blood. Or they put it in the drugs that they are manufacturing and we are already cannibals and don't realize it. We're sick to the core. Polluted with blood. And as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. Everything that is against the truth and good and right. So the ministers don't have the people's best interest in mind either. They're telling people, go get the shot. Where, where are true men of God who will stand up and say, don't do that, don't do that, and don't do that? No, they're telling them, you've got to go by Romans 13 and do everything the government tells you. It's a misapplication of Romans 13. We obey God rather than man, Acts 5.29. And God doesn't want us taking the mark of the beast. And these shots are the beginning of that mark. They're putting their mark upon us. And pretty soon, you won't be able to buy and sell without it. Or maybe even cross your state border without it. Is it what is being used to exact control on us by the world system? You bet it is. And there are preachers who will say, well, this isn't the mark of the beast. That's just something in your head, forehead or your hand. How long do you think it's going to be before they put it in your hand or your forehead? So that all you have to do is not dip your card or tap your card, but tap your hand. Or lean over and let it read your brain, your little bitty brain that they put in there. It's on us. Verse 10, I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the whoredom of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Spiritual whoredom is anything that takes you away from faithfulness to God. Okay? We, maybe we have trouble sometimes equating physical whoredom with spiritual whoredom. But when a man and woman get married, they pledge at that time, heart, mind, body, and soul, I will be faithful to you in every way. That's what they ought to be thinking when they get married. And when we serve God... It ought to be with those same thoughts in mind. So anything that takes us in any way away from total faithfulness to God and to Christ, our husband-to-be, that is spiritual whoredom. 
That's why Christ said, if you look upon a woman that lusts after, you've done the same infraction of actually having sex with her. Because that's the mental approach. That's the spiritual approach. That has to be controlled. Because it is an unfaithfulness in mind, if not in body. And God requires total faithfulness, is what he requires. Do you think Christ is going to marry a bride who is going to be faithful 98% of the time? I kind of doubt it. Also, O Judah, he is set in harvest for you. When I return to the captivity of my people. Now that could be both ways. He's going to harvest them, cut them off at the shoes. But he can also have a harvest of the Jews. About 10% who are going to survive. In other words, he'll have 90% killed as tares or a harvest to death and 10% of a harvest to life to live and establish the millennium because that's the context here of six. I'm going to punish you, you'll turn to me early, and then I can begin to bless you. He's already said he will bless the church soon now because 10% are and have turned to him. And he will then bless this nation after he completely destroys it and they begin to turn to him at the beginning of the millennium and he will open the early and the latter reigns. So God has in mind to save us. He loves to have sinners repent. The angels in heaven rejoice and sing Hosanna over one sinner brought to repentance. That's how personal it is. That's how much God and the angels appreciate it when they see one person on this earth turn from the filthiness that is the earth. How glorious that must be. Out of eight billion people, one person says, I'm going to serve you with all my heart. Wow, how that must light up the heavens. We can light up the heavens, brethren, by turning to God with our whole heart. And he cannot help men turning and smiling on us and blessing us. And he'll be the same way with this nation of Ephraim. When we have been punished severely and finally turn and say, I think I'll worship you. And he's going to smile on us as a nation then and bless this nation like it has never been blessed before. That's God's ultimate goal and purpose. But boy, what it takes to get you there. It's like Christ said, for a rich man to get into the kingdom is like a camel going through the eye of a needle. What does that do to a camel? <laughs> Let's squeeze her down pretty good to get it through there.
I know it's talking about a low gate in Jerusalem, maybe. But the analogy is, it's tough for a human being, and especially a wealthy one, to give up what he's got and worship God instead. That is a tough thing to do. So God says, you can light up my life. Debbie Boone sang a song about that way back in, what, 50s or 60s? You light up my life. That's all God wants of us, brethren. Make the angels in heaven jump for joy and light up their life and light up God's life. Love Him by doing His ways and He can't help Himself from opening the former and the latter reigns and blessing us in ways like we've never understood. He tells the repentant church in Isaiah 54, I'll pour out my spirit on you and it'll be my righteousness. Come, have milk and wine without money. I'm going to give you everything you need. I'll bless you like you've never even dreamed of. Just come and worship me and this will all be yours. He's saying the same thing to the nation here. Repent. Please. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That's what I want. 